Pushkin. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. A woman lies motionless. A passerby mistakes her for a vagrant. People often curl up in the hallways of this building at night. He ignores her. Another two hours pass before anyone realizes that the sleeping figure is in fact dead. And not dead from illness or mishap. She's been stabbed multiple times. Her clothing has also been pushed up exposing the lower half of her body. Local residents claim they saw and heard nothing of her murder in the night. But perhaps they simply heard nothing out of the ordinary. After all, the neighbourhood of Whitechapel, this patch of London's East End, has a reputation as a sink of misery and vice, a place feared and reviled by many richer Londoners, a byword for all that is wrong with modern society. It is no stranger to violence and murder, and soon it will become synonymous with the deeds of a serial killer. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. You're listening to Bad Women, The Ripper Retold, a series about the real lives of the women killed by Jack the Ripper and how we got their stories so wrong. Side money plenty and friends to buy the score. Then fortune smiled upon me, and no one passed my door. Down. 
In order to tell you these victims' stories, I first need to acquaint you with the spaces where they spent their final months, days and hours in London's East End. Listen. This is the sound of 1888. It's a piece of music called The Lost Chord, recorded in the summer of that year on a phonograph, a marvellous new invention of the era. We are in London, and the date is August 6th. This is the capital of one of the richest, most technologically advanced superpowers on the face of the earth. It's also at the centre of the largest empire in history, with colonies, conquests and dominions spanning a quarter of the globe, from Canada to the Cape, Egypt to Australia. Queen Victoria has been sitting on the throne for more than 50 years, reigning over this centre of art, literature, commerce and science. She has recently celebrated her Golden Jubilee with a series of lavish balls, magnificent festivals, dinners, regattas, races and parades designed to display the extraordinary wealth of the nation. But for all this splendour, there remains squalor. Hold him down and take his money. Pits and pockets of absolute destitution. Like here. I've brought you to the heart of Whitechapel. This is Jack the Ripper's London. Look him on A sailor from the busy docks nearby has wandered, or perhaps been lured, into the dense maze of alleyways and dark courtyards. Go on, get him! He'll be beaten and left for dead. (laughs) Whitechapel is one of the most densely populated parts of the city. Dozens of people will have heard the sailors' cries for help, but no one lifts a finger. Well, we ain't deaf. But there ain't a night passes, there ain't a fight in a passage or a drunken row. But why should I interfere? It ain't no business of mine. Let's walk along this street. It's called George Yard. It's not the sort of place for the unwary to wander. Even the local police agree. They consider George Yard to be one of the most dangerous streets in the locality. It is said that police constables dare not even enter the buildings around us. Crime has been decreasing across London as living standards have improved, but not here. In these tight, crowded streets, grinding poverty persists. I can tell you this with some certainty, because the written records are as rich as they are sobering. One eminent businessman, Charles Booth, set about documenting the true extent of poverty in the city. He sent his researchers to visit these streets and assess the inhabitants. They marked the findings down on a map, colour-coding what they had witnessed. Look on those maps, and this neighbourhood is bordered by streets of red, pink and purple. The middle class, the well-to-do and the comfortably off. But closer to us... Those purples darken to blue, denoting the poor and very poor, people in chronic want. Where we stand, in George Yard, the map shows stretches of jet black. In the legend of the Booth maps, black stands for the lowest class. Vicious, it reads, 
and semi-criminal. The houses here are tall, dark and old. Their brickwork is worn and covered in soot. Their plaster and paint cracks and crumbles. Many of the windows are broken. Indeed, these buildings are so shabby and neglected, they look like they must be abandoned. But they're not. The decrepit rooms inside have been portioned out to a multitude of different occupants. Entire families are crammed into these tiny living spaces, along with a variety of vermin, which make life itchy and disease-ridden. There's a shared toilet, a grim common privy. But many residents avoid this if they can help it, especially at night. Instead, they use a chamber pot stowed under the bed, so the stench in each room is heavy. I want you to meet the people who live here, people like Elizabeth Stride. She's currently renting a sparsely furnished room in one of these buildings with her hard-drinking, violent partner... You stupid little woman. ...Michael Kidney. Get me my drink. Elizabeth is resourceful, intelligent and brave. She was born in rural Sweden and has taught herself to speak English fluently. Her life has been varied, at times filled with passion, but also marked by terrible misfortune. Her 44 years of life are fascinating, touching and thought-provoking, but she will be remembered merely as the third victim of Jack the Ripper. Elizabeth and Michael Kidney's room is grim and desolate, but it does offer one significant advantage over other types of accommodation, a door that can be shut. At the alternative, a common lodging house, all space is shared and privacy is non-existent. This is where we're heading next. Just over there, on Thrall Street, is Wilmot's, a women-only lodging house. Polly Nichols, another Ripper victim, is staying there at the moment. She's been sleeping rough across London, and she's only just arrived in Whitechapel. Polly feels safer at Wilmot's than at lodging houses that accommodate both sexes. Lodging house life can be violent and unpredictable for a woman on her own. Polly is heavy set, but small in stature, and her father has always thought she looked young for her age, even at 43. Polly's relationships with her family fascinate me. She was certainly a daddy's girl, but even he couldn't fix the mess that resulted when she walked out on her husband and children, never to return. For a Victorian wife and mother, this is extraordinarily bold, almost unheard of. What motivated her? Why would she do such a thing? But we'll return to Polly Nichols in a later episode. For now, we're on our way to another lodging house altogether, via a local market. These streets are a hive of activity. Street sellers, beggars, musicians, drunkards, workers, shoppers, and of course, lots of horse traffic. I'll buy rope, steer rods, locks, keys. Petticoat Lane bursts with extraordinary sights, sounds, and smells. Canny salesmen push cheap garments, imitation jewelry, and dubious medicines. They crowd the street, and the path between them is narrow. I can't give you 16 shillings. I've got my rent to pay. Some stalls offer a medley of bric-a-brac, 
Madam, looks like you'd go through a fire for a bargain. Furniture covers, old clothes, worn-out boots and rusty locks. Buyers plan to renovate their items and sell them on again. There is a flourishing trade in second-hand clothing. Better and wear better than anything you've bought before. When the rent is due or when someone hasn't eaten for a while, a lady's bonnet or a man's shirt can be turned over to a dealer or a pawnbroker for ready cash. (coughs) Over there is Annie Chapman, that tired and weak soul with a terrible cough. She's contracted tuberculosis. Annie is counting the days until Saturday, That's when her partner, Ted Stanley, comes and meets her, takes her to the pub and spends the weekend with her at a local lodging house. Annie has bought herself a cheap ring to wear in place of a wedding band. Even here, in Whitechapel, she is worried about appearances. Not that long ago, Annie led an entirely different life. She owned pretty earrings, brooches and a real wedding ring. She even lived on a country estate in the shadow of Windsor Castle, Queen Victoria's residence. Her story, her tumble from comfort and 19th century respectability, is an astonishing and poignant one. But she rarely reveals the truth of her past life to anyone around here. (coughs) The woman they call Dark Annie leans against a wall, watching the hubbub. Traders hawk fruits and vegetables, breads and cakes. Customers haggle over fish. This part of London is home to a huge immigrant community. Jewish refugees fleeing the murderous pogroms of Russia and Eastern Europe have flocked here. Yiddish is spoken on the streets and floats from the theatres and music halls that cater to the newcomers. But we're just passing through the market and down this side street. It's slick with sewage and pools of stagnant water. In certain places, The stench of rot and refuse is pungent and nauseating. Trash gathers in the corners near dwellings. Human waste, horse droppings, worthless scraps and things broken beyond use are scattered about. Nothing of any value, no matter how minute, is ever thrown away. There is always someone who will repurpose it, fix it or sell it on. People have many ways of surviving here. And here's our destination... This common lodging house is a bleak and grimy establishment. Common lodging houses got going in the early 1850s in order to cater for very poor people who could no longer even afford uh, a weekly rent in a room of their own. That's social historian Sarah Wise. Now, these common lodging houses were totally private concerns, but they had, by law to be inspected by the Metropolitan Police. The stipulation was a common lodging house was somewhere in which three or more persons not of the same family may sleep within the same dormitory. So it's the idea that, yes, uh, we're mixing loads of people together with all the potential moral dangers that that could involve, but that's okay because all the beds are separated, we've got a superintendent on site so no hanky-panky gets going, and, of course, the police can inspect. Common lodging houses aren't supposed to admit anyone of known bad character. Drunkenness and other forms of vice, like adultery, aren't supposed to flourish here. But in practice, many turn a blind eye. They're not too fussed about bad character, and they do admit drunks. 
In fact, the conditions at a lodging house are as good or as bad as the person who runs it. And this lodging house is home to an awful lot of vice. At the entrance sits the deputy lodging house keeper, or manager. Before nightfall, he collects fourpence from everyone who intends to use the dormitory upstairs. That would be less than about $10 today. Fourpence buys a coffin bed, a person-sized box, likely hopping with fleas, in which to lie down. The room is noisy, dirty and stifling, but it's better than the street. And down this passage is another room. This kitchen is 30 feet long and packed full of people. An older woman dozes to one side with a filthy child playing at her feet. Once in the dear dead days beyond recall. It smells like old grease, beer, stale tobacco smoke, and the sharp oniony scent of sweaty, unwashed bodies. Just over there is Kate Eddowes with her partner John Kelly. Kate's the one singing. Kate has spent much of her life doing this, though usually she's selling sheet music when she's belting out a tune. Everyone who knows her, from her sisters to her friends at the lodging house, remark on her jolly personality. Just a song at twilight When the lights are low And the flickering shadows Softly come and go However, drink can turn her high-spiritedness into aggression. Kate fascinates me. She's a rebel, and she was born to a rebel. Her father was a union agitator, so perhaps it was he who taught her to rail against the system. She rejected the conventional existence of her mother, grandmother, and sisters, life constantly giving birth, scrubbing and cooking, and instead chose the open road. She's lived for many years as a vagrant, Kate's story is about the lack of choices available to women and how class and gender kept them in poverty. A group of men, all of them drunk, are crowded there by the range, quaffing beer. This is a common sight. Many of the people here are bereaved, lonely and homeless, and they drown their sorrows. Well, when a man's lost his place, he may as well go the old log, bristles and all. Yeah, yeah. Some commotion is breaking out in one corner. Hey! It's two women, arguing over a bar of soap. This is a precious commodity. But there's also conviviality in this kitchen. The cooking range, the focus of the room, burns all day. And it bathes the space around it in warmth. This is a blessing. Even in the summer, London days can be chilly. Everybody convened down in the great big common kitchen. You would buy your food out in the street, maybe from a costermonger. Maybe you get a saveloy or some fish, maybe some bacon or a jacket potato. And you use the range of the common stove to cook your food and you eat it in the kitchen with everyone around you. And we've got plenty of eyewitness accounts of just what kind of quite convivial places these could be card games, all sorts of board games going on, people laughing, joking, reading the newspaper in the corner, and there's human warmth and human noise and company and chat. I wouldn't underestimate the value of that in some broken lives. 
This lodging house is the haunt of beggars, criminals, women selling sex, chronic alcoholics, the unemployed, the sick, the old. But there are people here from other walks of life too. Some of these lodging house residents entered the world in entirely different circumstances. We do hear of members of the aristocracy who have drunk their inheritance or gambled it away. Maybe being an aristocrat wasn't what they wanted. So a much bigger mix than many people would have thought living in your common lodging house. Today, the 6th of August, I'm looking for a particular face in this kitchen, a local woman named Martha Tabram. Martha's around 40, and like most of the women who live here, her hard life has taken its toll. Her marriage has soured, as have other partnerships with men. In a few hours... Martha's story will end in her murder. As evening draws in, the atmosphere in the kitchen starts to change. Desperation increases. The deputy lodging housekeeper has started turning out those who haven't paid for a bed that night. Outside, a police constable is on patrol. Fights often break out when lodging houses close their doors for the evening. Today is a public holiday, so some locals have indulged in more drink than usual. This officer is ready and waiting to arrest any troublemakers. The men of the local police force, H Division, will soon be pitched into a difficult and desperate hunt to find Jack the Ripper and end the horrific killings. What they do, what they say, and what they decide to enter into the historical record will set the tone for how the murdered women are remembered well into the 21st century. So let's learn a bit about them and follow this police constable back to headquarters. The Ripper Retold will be back in just a moment. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. 
If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information, so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Welcome to Lehman Street Police Station, home to H Division of the Metropolitan Police. H Division comprises about 500 officers, pounding their beats in a labyrinth of dark city streets from the wharves and docks on the River Thames up to the gasworks and filthy canals of Haggerston. In between are some of the most deprived neighbourhoods in the capital, plenty of dark blues and blacks on Charles Booth's poverty map. Inside is the kind of commotion you might expect of a busy police station. We know from the records that there's a steady flow of arrests and that the holding cells are filling up. John Hawkins has been brought in for assaulting his wife and 19-year-old Joseph Gibson is under arrest, charged with indecent exposure. I'm interested in one police officer in particular, Thomas Barrett, He's about to start a night shift, and he's going to play a significant role in Martha Tabram's story. We know from police records that Thomas is five foot ten. This is tall by Victorian standards. He's also just moved to London from idyllic rural Dorset. Whitechapel has surely been a shock to the system. He himself lives outside the neighbourhood, for Whitechapel isn't considered a fitting address for such an upstanding young man. Thomas is getting ready to walk his regular beat. He carries an oil lantern swinging from his belt, which he'll use to peer into Whitechapel's dark corners, and there are many of those. He also has a pair of handcuffs with him and a whistle. This is a relatively new piece of technology, allowing him to cut through the din of the Whitechapel streets and summon help if he needs it. It's a useful tool. As he patrols, he'll meet with all kinds of crimes and misdemeanors, from alcohol-fueled fights to robberies, stabbings and domestic violence. He'll also confront social care issues. When the police encounter drunkards who are so inebriated that they can no longer walk, they arrest them and bring them in. Take local woman Margaret Kane. By the start of this year, she had been charged with drunken disorderliness over 200 times. Sometimes she challenges the policeman outside the station. On other occasions, she just hands herself in. The recruitment criteria to join the force are strict. Officers must be able to read and write. They also must be over a certain height, aged between 21 and 35, and come with a reference that shows their good, respectable character. But whatever you might have gathered from Sherlock Holmes stories, the detection skills of these officers are limited. 
They rely on eyewitnesses, confessions, and catching culprits red-handed. We're back out on the street, and it's dark. Let's follow Constable Barrett on his beat. What about the angel and crown for a drink? We pass off-duty soldiers stationed at the nearby Tower of London. I rather fancy the ten bells, Mr. We're turning onto Whitechapel Road, the busiest and widest thoroughfare in the area. It's lined with pubs, one seemingly every few yards. Here, the hopeless drown their sorrows in rot-gut gin. But they are also the closest thing many local people have to a parlour or a living room. Here, people can meet, talk, play games and sing together, all in the warm amber glow of gaslight. Some pubs are even opulent, with carved wooden panelling and decorative mirrors. I'll have a dog's nose myself. That's half a pint of ale with a pennyworth of gin. The Angel and Crown on Goulston Street is not such I'll a place. A it's 150 mind. years old, and it shows. This pub's me, interior has been worn by the years and by the rough company that congregates here. Will you take something, miss? Martha Tabram has been here this evening with a friend and two soldiers who would have been paying for their drinks. In the Victorian era, this was expected of men, no matter their social background. Martha, like so many Whitechapel inhabitants, likes a tipple. But it's possible that an edge of desperation crept in on her enjoyment as the hours wore on this evening. Martha would have woken this morning not knowing where she would be sleeping come nightfall. When the pub closes, she'll be worried about scraping together the four pence to return to her lodging house. Will she be able to afford it, or will she have to sleep on the street with all the dangers this brings? Constable Barrett continues his beat. Leaving the main street, we are entering darker, narrower alleys and passages. This lack of light is oppressive and menacing. We slide and skid on who knows what. A figure appears ahead of us, a man. Barrett's lamp illuminates a soldier in uniform. The constable challenges him. What is he doing loitering here at this time? Waiting for a chum who went off with a girl. Comes the reply. Not an unusual answer, perhaps, and so the beat continues, hour after hour with no rest. We are passing Miller's Court now. There, in the broken window of number 13, a light flickers. Mary Jane Kelly, a sex worker, rents this one-room abode with her partner, Joseph Barnett, who has only recently lost his job at Billingsgate Fish Market. This was their only source of income, and Barnett is too proud to let his girlfriend solicit on the streets again. Their worries will grow in the coming weeks before Mary Jane becomes a victim of the Ripper. Mary Jane's life is a puzzle for anyone attempting to unravel the stories and half-truths that make up her existence. She once sold sex in the rich West End of London and moved in much higher circles, wearing nice dresses and travelling in carriages between restaurants and hotels. What on earth happened to land her here, in a furnished room, in a yard across from a block of stinking latrines? but that will be for later. Now, as the first glow of morning breaks the eastern sky and as workers begin to rise from their beds, there are other matters to return to. Help! Police! We are back in George Yard. Help! A woman's body has been found. The wide pool of blood around it has already begun to thicken and dry. 
Her clothes are in disarray. It seems hopeless, but Constable Barrett sends for medical assistance. Martha Tabram has been dead for several hours, says Dr. Colleen. He counts 39 stab wounds. When the catalogue of injuries is later read out to the coroner at court, he says it is the most dreadful crime anyone can imagine and declares that the murderer must be a savage. He urges the officers of H Division to find the culprit. Constable Barrett is sent to track down the soldier he'd seen at about the time of Martha's death, but he has no luck. The other soldiers he interviews close ranks, offering up alibis for each other and frustrating Barrett's investigation. With hindsight, the viciousness of Martha's unsolved murder will cause some people to conclude that her death was the work of Jack the Ripper. Rightly or wrongly, Martha's death doesn't feature in the conventional telling of the famous Ripper story. Her murder, along with the killings of ten other women between April 1888 and February 1891, are referred to collectively as the Whitechapel murders. Those women were Emma Elizabeth Smith, Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly, Rose Milet, Alice Mackenzie, Frances Coles, and the torso of an anonymous woman found under a railway arch. At the time, and even today, there is debate about whether all of these women were victims of the same killer. Eventually, the consensus among the police would be that due to the similarity of the weapon used and the nature of the injuries, only Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Catherine and Mary Jane could be identified as Ripper victims. Martha's death, as well as the murders of those who followed, whether by the hands of Jack the Ripper or some other malefactor, only served to illustrate just how normal deadly violence against women was in 19th century Whitechapel and how the killers so often escape justice. I often get asked why I didn't include Martha Tabram among the Ripper victims or why I didn't write a book called The Eleven. But writing a book about Jack the Ripper, obsessing over the minutiae of injuries and murder weapons, was never my objective. I wanted to study life, not the agonising, terror-filled moments of death, and the five offered me a perfect data set. The experiences of Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate and Mary Jane were quite simply the experiences of millions of Victorian women. They fell in love, endured childbirth and the deaths of parents. They argued with their siblings, they wept, they dreamed, they hurt and they enjoyed small triumphs. The courses of their lives mirrored that of so many others. And yet... Their lives were so singular in the ways they ended. Jack the Ripper will never be caught, but justice can be restored when we remember their names and learn their stories. They don't need to be forgotten or to remain silent any longer. So please, come with me. I can't wait to introduce you to them.
Bad Women the Ripper Retold is brought to you by Pushkin Industries and me, Hallie Rubenhold, and is based on my book, The Five. It was produced and co-written by Ryan Dilley and Alice Fines, with help from Pete Norton. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. You also heard the voice talents of Saul Boyer, Melanie Guttridge, Gemma Saunders and Rufus Wright. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Mia LaBelle, Jacob Weisberg, Jen Guerra, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano and Daniela Lacan. With special thanks to my agents, Sarah Ballard and Ellie Karen. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there, way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals, and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home too? The place to do it is Errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at errands. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details.